You're tuning into the Real Estate Diversification Podcast, hosted by trusted and experienced real estate attorneys who are also seasoned real estate investors themselves. Are you ready to explore unique real estate investing opportunities? Ready to learn about emerging trends and new ideas? Your hosts will help you understand the practical and legal complexities of a myriad of real estate investments so that you can maximize your potential and achieve financial freedom. Now, listen in and get ready to learn. Get ready to learn. Welcome back, Red Podcast Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today. It's another episode. I've got a co-host today, another uh, cohort here. It's the Kansas City Real Estate Law Firm, my colleague, Hunter Woodhart. Hunter, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good. Glad to be yeah. here. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for putting some work on this and look forward to working together to teach people today a little bit about subsidized housing. There's all types of subsidized housing. The most common that people are probably aware of is Section 8, so we're going to cover that. And then we're also going to cover some Section 42, which is more of a tax credit program. And just for our audience out there, there are uh, you know dozens, if not more, of these type of programs. A lot of them are federal, some of them are state, some are even local. You know, cities will often have cities even will have kind of public policy initiatives where they want, say, 20% of an apartment complex to be quote affordable. And affordable could be measured by any one of a number of metrics, say 80% of the median income level. And then based on that. Programs like Section 42, you, you're desi it's designed to provide affordable housing, uh, so they'll give you some sort of subsidy. Um, and we'll get into that. And in Section 8, it's generally more at the individual basis as opposed to an entire complex. It could be an entire building or complex, but oftentimes, and where my experience has been with Section 8, has been on a single residential building or single site-built house. I've also done it on a single mobile home. I have a mobile home park here in Kansas City where I've got 93 units. About five or six are homes that are, we own the home and we rent them to people on Section 8. We've got about 25 other homes that we own and we rent them to people who are just paying market-based rental rate. And then we have you know 60 or so other pad sites where we, there are homes on there that we may have owned at one time, but we've since sold. And they're tenant-owned homes. And in that case, they just pay a lot rent. And we'll now cover mobile home parks in another episode. But for today... We're going to talk about subsidized housing. So there's Section 8 and Section 42 are the, are the two we're going to highlight. But again, there are many others. So just right out of the gate, high level on Section 8, you know, it's often called choice housing now because the old Section 8 had a bad reputation. Um, I had a lot of people tell me when I got in the rental business 15 years ago, don't do Section 8. And there was a stereotypical you know, single mother of three in a rough neighborhood in a really crappy house. And these were slumlords. So the program really has rebranded itself as choice housing. Um, in theory, people have the choice to be in this program. But the reality is they are screened and they generally are being determined to need some sort of some sort of leg up. It's it's administered typically at the at high level at the federal level, Department of HUD, and then they generally find local cities or counties or even other nonprofits I've seen that are involved in the the Section 8 process. So that's just kind of real high level on Section 8. Section 42 is um, there's also state credits, but the one that I'm talking about in Section 42 is the federal code. Uh, it's the LITEC or Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, and it's administered by the IRS, interestingly enough. Oftentimes, these are buildings that are constructed with tax credit. You know, So there's uh, maybe a building that you build and you have the subsidy of a credit 
So let's say you're going to build a $10 million complex and you get a $7 million loan Well, you need $3 million of equity. Well, one way that you get equity is you may get $3 million of tax credits, maybe $3.2 million, and you can sell these tax credits to people that have taxable income, whether federal or state. And they can, unlike a deduction, or if you make $100,000, you have $10,000 of deductions, you get, your income is only $90,000 and you pay taxes based on that. Well, a credit is actually dollar for dollar. So it's, a credit is more valuable from an income tax perspective than a deduction would be. So this program, you know, typically you have to go through a number of hoops. We'll cover those. Oftentimes it's a 10-year horizon where you get the tax credits. Sometimes you can monetize them and sell them, you know, at the front end. And there are lots of other you know, state and historic state historic preservation tax credits. There are new markets tax credits and a bunch of other ones, but in general, they all work uh, similarly. So that's um, kind of the brief intro. All right, Hunter, I've been talking at you, so I'll be quiet and let you maybe just high level go through some of the common documents involved in these transactions. Yeah. So, um, I mean, first thing you're going to do for either is typically identify a property uh, or in the case of Section 8, it can be more of identifying a tenant that is, you know, has a voucher and then entering into a lease agreement or a rental agreement. Yeah, if you're Section 8, you'll have the Section 8 housing voucher. And then if it's a Section 42, then the developer or the owner of the qualified building will enter into the uh, credit agreement. And then both Section 8 and Section 42 will have financing documents often. So, you know, your mortgage, your uh, deed of trust, if, if, depending on the state, uh, no, uh, you'll have environmental reports. So, you know, you, phase one, uh, if needed, phase two, uh, you'll have zoning documents. You'll need to have, make sure that you have you know, the right occupancy permits. If it's going to be for, you know, residential here, um, building permits, make sure that the building is up to code, uh, local zoning jurisdictions and you know, other permits as, as required. So if it's a mobile home park, oftentimes, you know, you'll, you'll need more uh, for that. But Yeah, good, good points. A couple of things I want to add there. So the Section 8 voucher, I, I just call this a gold piece of paper. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's a piece of paper, basically, this number of pages. But the, the, the resident or prospective resident says, hey, look, I got a voucher, which means the federal government is paying some portion of my rent. So they they come to you oftentimes. You can get your home approved on the front end, but you can also just let them come to you and then then you get your home approved. Whereas the Section 42 agreement is more of a process and agreement and the government's generally involved. When you talk about financing documents, oftentimes there will be a financing piece for the tax credits and or a restrictions, which we'll get into that more run with the land, run with the building, meaning they're of record at the recorder deeds office on your title commitment. And those documents basically will require the property to be operated in compliance in compliance for a set period of time versus Section 8. Um, if you've got a resident who signs a one-year lease in the year, if they move out, that house is no longer subject to the Section 8 requirements. Um, and then in generally the environmentals, the zoning, the building permits, those are more important on the section 42. Obviously, any sort of building or house is subject to you know, local code as far as permitting zoning. Most of the land use items um, are at the local level, um, you know, at the municipality, as opposed to the federal government's like my section eight stuff, federal government's never come and inspected the home, right? They've they've basically delegated that work to a local agency and they will you know, work with the residents and so on. So 
I'll jump in a little bit to this, the, the voucher program or the choice program, you know, formerly known as Section 8. A lot of people still call it Section 8. I've also found that a lot of the prospective residents, they just call it housing. They'll come. Like I, I used to post my own ads on Facebook for housing, and I would I'd put you know, the, the, like literally the most common question I would get is, do you accept housing? And like housing, what do you mean? Of course, this is a house. I guess I'm accepting housing. Oh, no, no. It's the housing voucher choice program. Okay. I didn't know what that was at the time. I mean, I knew what Section 8 was, but I didn't know these other names. They'd say housing. You know, other popular questions are, do you accept pets? Do you allow pets? Things like that. So the process to get involved in Section 8, generally, you can contact your local housing authority or you can wait for somebody with the golden piece of paper to come up to you. You need to complete the necessary paperwork. It's basically like, and this impacts the pricing as to whether or not um, the resident's going to pay 100%, typically not 100, they're going to pay 1% or they're going to pay 50%. And, and part of that is their approved level of subsidy, which is a, a factors in a number of things, including their income and their, and their other payment obligations. But then also like how many bedrooms they're approved for, how many, you know, sometimes if it's a three bedroom, one bath or a three bedroom, two bath, you could get a different pricing. And then what utilities are included and even what type of utilities are in the home. So, for example, I live here in Missouri. It gets moderately cold. It was 30 degrees this morning here, March 27th, as we're recording this. And as such, we use you can have either electric heat or gas heat. Gas heat is generally less less expensive on a monthly basis. So, if the house is electric heat, I've sold, I've rented mobile homes that are all electric, and I'll get dinged by Section Eight. Like, well, we, the resident can't pay all that electric. So they can, we're only going to let them pay so much more in rent. But basically, you got to complete the paperwork and show them the property. And show them about the property. And then another process is the um, the property inspection. And this has gotten a bad reputation in the years as far as like very onerous. I don't think they're that onerous, to be honest. It's like the fridge must be clean. The carpet must not have any noticeable like vomit or blood. I mean, it's just like, what? Like they basically like, we don't want, quote, poor people to have to live in poor or substandard conditions. So they want to inspect it. And then they want doors that lock, windows that open and close, um, GFCI outlets in the kitchen, in the bathrooms, things that are like basic modern code. So um, generally, you know, any home that's really old may be a problem. Any home that's in the last 25 or 30 years, it's not that big a deal to make some, and they generally give you a reinspection. They come by once, they give you a written list, and they come by a second time. If you miss the second time, you're in trouble, you're out, right? So you got to make sure you fix that stuff. Um, sometimes they make you attend an orientation. I've never actually had to go to one, um, and I've done this in several cities. So um, the local administrators that I've worked with do not require an orientation. I think they required some, they give me a pack of information that I had to fill out an affidavit or something that I read it. Um, and then another step in the process is listing your property. This is kind of optional. Like you can tell, they will help you market and you can, they'll, you can list the property on their list and then it puts it on the program, but you can just do your own regular marketing as well. Um, like all residences that you're leasing, you should screen the tenants. You have to screen the tenants here. Now they also screen them. So it's like a double check. Which again, one of the old knocks in the program is you had bad residents, but like really you kind of don't because they mess up, then they lose their gold piece of paper and they have to put up their own security deposit typically. Um, again, like all housing, you have to use, treat them equally. And meaning you can't, you know, just say, oh, now that, you're in, that your income is partially from the government, I'm going to kick you out. No, it's like, if you're going to allow section eight, which is an option, then you treat them equally. Um, and then you should have them sign a lease. And then Section H gonna have, may have an addendum or a supplement to that lease. And then you just start receiving rental payments, right? Pretty cool. And if you evict them, sometimes there's eviction hurdles that you have to go through above and beyond. 
um, regular landlord tenant law. Um, Section eight also has another program that's like domestic abuse. I had a woman that moved in and she had been assault, sexually assaulted and section eight was paying all of her rent for a certain period of time. But I had to agree that I wouldn't evict her, you know, basically for any reason. Um, ironically, I ended up having to evict that woman because her boyfriend became a major problem. Um, but I had to wait X number of months before I could do it. Um, and it's not uncommon for people that are on section eight to have a family member or boyfriend or girlfriend sneak in um, to get in on the, the free rent, so to speak. So that's another thing you got to look at as part of the, as part of the screening. All right, Hunter, high level, anything I missed there on section eight, or you want to jump into pros and cons? Um, no, I think you outlined the, the process pretty, pretty well for the section eight. It's, it's definitely more simple than the 42 is. Uh, agreed. So. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, I'll jump in. I'll cover some of the pros and why don't you uh, cover some of the cons and if some of them will probably agree upon some of them we may debate, but um Obviously, I think the, the best thing about Section 8, the number one pro, is it's essentially guaranteed rent. The government's paying the rent, right? So that's that's a pro. On that, though, um, I mean, you have some more increased administrative work, right? We've talked about that you have to have extra compliance. So uh, guaranteed pay, but um, more work. And uh, you can oftentimes have less you know, less control over the tenant selection, too, because you have to you know treat everyone with the equal of course which i mean applies to all housing but section 8 alone will have additional criteria that like if you're going to accept section 8 housing then you need to accept these terms for tenants and so it can encroach on on some of that control that a landlord may have yeah no i mean i'll, I'll concede that for sure that you know the, the income is is quote guaranteed but it ain't free because it comes with hoops and and and, the, and section eight pitches to us that oh we have compliance support but as, as you've kind of alluded to there you need support because you have all this extra compliance and red tape so that's that would be a, a key con of section eight um you know another con related to that is you know just these extra repairs or extra enhancements to a home you know you get the income eventually but you have to spend more money so you have more expenses on the front end as well like you know, if I have a mobile home that's got 16 windows and 15 of them open, I'm probably just going to leave it, right? And then just say, hey, look, just don't open that window if it's, you know, it's right next right next to another window. So if there's a fire, jump out the other one. If you want to open the windows for the breeze, like, one of them doesn't work that well. And they're not going to like that. They're going to make you fix that window and make what you saw? Have... Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, let's also not forget that it can sometimes be, you know, the, the rate can be capped at what you're allowed to charge. So while it's guaranteed, it, it may not be as much as you could get at the open market. No, that's that's definitely true. I've had that happen where it's it's frustrating where, you know, I'm, I'm going to rent this for 950. Me and the customer agree it's 950. Section 8 comes out and they say, well, based on their income or based on the market, you can only charge 900. And you and you and it takes a, it takes a minute. So you have taken it off the market essentially to go through this process, and then they tell me I get fifty dollars less. So what I've found is the new shiny houses, while everybody wants them, they don't work as well for Section Eight because they're not going to really give you a premium rent because it's new and shiny. They're basically identifying the price based on zip code and bedroom count. So, you know, I, I used to do this with single family houses, it'd be a hundred year old house, you know, but it was in a desirable area and it'd be three bedroom. Okay. The house next door could be pristine, new construction, three bedroom, and it's like the same price. Right. So um, the, the sweet spot is probably your 
your B level uh, single family home or your B level mobile home to be approved for um, to get to, to maximize maximize the rental rate. Um, I'd say a pro also is just reduce vacancy rates, right? Because you're opening yourself up to the the whole market of housing. I had a woman one time and she came in and she goes, do you guys take housing? And it was a home, that, a mobile home I had just rolled in. And I was like, yeah, I'll take housing. How much is your voucher? And she's like, 950. And I was just like, I was going to rent that for 850. Uh, yeah, I'll do 950. And in her case, the federal government paid like 930 of the 950. And she said to me something like 700. And she's like starting to cry. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, 700 consecutive people said no when I asked them if they take Section 8 or they take housing. And I couldn't believe it, but I do. I get, I get those messages all the time on Facebook. Like it was the auto, auto reply almost, like you take housing, you take housing. And a lot of times on our brand new homes, we'll say no, not the first time. It's never been occupied. We don't do it on a new home, but on a home that's already been occupied, I'll say sure. And, but I got to watch it because financing and stuff with my banks, they only want a certain percentage of rentals, period. And if a Section 8 renter is going to be an all time renter, they rarely convert to mobile home buyers or cycled house buyers. So, um, there was a massive demand. So that's a huge pro is that you know, reduce vacancy and, and reduce just cost of marketing and advertising because section eight, well, if you don't, they can help you find people, but I've never had that issue. If I put a home for rent, we accept section eight. <clears throat> I'm going to have to take the ad down by the end, by the end of the hour because I'm going to be blowing up so much. So that's, that's a huge pro is, is massive demand. One note on that though is, um, and I think the pro might weigh, outweigh the, the con here, but there can be a higher turnover rate with the Section 8 because there's this constant competition of looking for what can I get for my 950 that's better, right? What's newer? What's you know, what, um, what's the new shiny toy? So uh, while you might have all these, you know, the demand for it, it it's oftentimes it, it can be because they're leaving every few years or because they just... Uh, they're leaving because they want to, you know, you want to stay in a place every three, four years and then move somewhere new, a uh, different part of the city. Yeah, I mean, or... that might be the case in some markets in the Midwest here. I've not experienced that to me, the residents stay for a really long time. I had a woman move out of a site built house because she was required to pay all the heat bill. And the, it was an old house with bad insulation and the heat bill was several hundred dollars a month. So she moved out because of utilities but, and then I have people move out when I'm like, Hey, I'm going to sell these. I have to help sell some more houses. I'm not going to rent these, this tranche, but generally I, I don't do that till they're like ready to leave. Um, but I've had a high occupancy, low, and then generally low risk default. Um, one challenge I've had that does lead to some turnover is when they end up getting boyfriend or a grandma or stepson or somebody to move in and they've outgrown the house and, or some people get, booted off the program for other reasons. Like they have basically probation. They have to do certain job training and skills training or uh, have you know, stay out of drugs or whatever. And then they've, they've been, you know, quote, asked to leave the program. Um, but overall, I think it gives you an, an, a wider range of tenants to access. And then it's, um, you know, you can have a positive community impact also. They're like, look, I'm providing, you know, you're providing affordable housing when you're doing Section 8. So there's a little bit of um, just feel good. Like I mentioned, the one lady, this was like five years ago. And her and her husband, they have my phone number because a lot of my residents don't because we go through, we have to go through the management company. But I actually leased them this house myself. So she still will like text me once in a while and say, like, 
just want to let you know you're a blessing. We appreciate this house, this neighborhood. We've never been happier. We're praying for you. Let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Like this lady and her husband's there too. They're like, you know, 75 year old couple. And they're just sweet as can be. So it's like, all right, I'm like never going to sell that house and make them move, you know? And they take, they take pristine care of it. Right. Uh, so, which is, which used to be the the knock was they beat it up. Um, but I haven't found resident, you know, if you have tenants in general as a landlord, at some point, somebody's going to punch a hole in the wall. Somebody's going to, you know, break a window, but I've not seen an undue uh, amount of damages in, in my rental houses that are section eight. Those are most of the pros, uh, pros I can think of. Hunter, you got any cons that, that I missed? Um, no, I mean, the, the only last thing I can think would be, uh, and, and it kind of ties into what we've already said with treating everyone fairly, but that does entail the eviction process. And that means that you're going to have to go through the, the same eviction process as everyone. So, um, you know, one might think that there's, you know, some kind of agreement with the, between, uh, you know, section eight with the government and the landlord that if, if there's, you know, default or a breach of the lease that they can just, you know, have a self-help eviction almost, but that that's not the case. And so oftentimes you'll have to resort to the, the state's court, wherever you're located at and, and go through that process alone. Uh, but, you know, looking at some of the things beforehand, it, it, people have, taken better care of the the units now that is kind of a, a stereotype stigma from the past uh, the you know to your point of long you know longevity with the with the tenants there i i think we're kind of moving past where that's as much of a concern because you they don't want to be evicted they want to stay in this area and and, and take care of it so um, something to know though something to keep in mind that you won't you won't be able to get a quicker, fast process just because it's section eight. Don't have to do everything else. Yeah, that could, I've, I've had to go through a few evictions on section eight and they have been a little bit slower. Um, but I've also had section eight step up on a few occasions and be like, hey, look, John Smith didn't pay his his half or his 20 percent and they'll pay for him. Generally, they'll want a, a commitment not to evict for so many more months. So I, they'll do that on a short term basis sometimes. But I did have one one time where the woman was due for her annual inspection. Most time there's annual inspections. During COVID, they kind of got rid of them for a while. They just let you sign a piece of paper saying, yep, the home's still good. But this woman had her boyfriend living there and her mom. And I didn't know. Or I looked the other way. I don't remember. But um, came time for the annual inspection. So I said, hey, you're getting inspected on Monday. Which was not me telling her, if you have guests, move them out um, or make it look like they don't live there. But what she did was she moved out that weekend. And I like never let the guy, the guy was not approved to live there. So if he was there once in a while, I was like, whatever, I'm going to look the other way. But he wasn't an approved resident. He wasn't on the lease. So I just assumed he didn't live there, right? Um, well, he must have been because she moved out on the weekend. So I called Section 8 and I said, hey, she moved out and she's actually behind on rent. So, I'd, and I just signed a lease for her. It's winter and it's a bad time to release his home. So I need you to cover her half and your half. And they said, oh, she moved out? I go, yeah. I didn't kick her out. She just moved out. She just disappeared. They go, well, if she doesn't live there, we can't pay rent. I was like, what? That's like literally the only reason I let her in with her credit score was because you were paying half. And they're like, well, we're not paying our half either. So it was a major, it was a double kick. And I was like, what? So that was kind of the real pain of eviction. I still had to go evict her. 
because eventually I got her to waive rights and, and say, all right, I'm out. But I had to go through the formal process because she didn't formally leave. She just, quote, you know, looked like she left. Um, but eventually we were able to get get her out of there formally as well. So a little bit of a pain for sure. Um, that kind of wraps up Section 8. Um, so why don't you give us the high, the down and dirty kind of high level detail on Section 42, Hunter? Yeah, so I mean, we kind of talked about before with the intro. It's primarily this time instead of being geared towards a tenant, uh, it's a landlord as an owner of the uh, <clears throat> owner of a qualified building, or, or most likely in the most cases, the developer who's erecting, constructing a new new residency. Um, but the process for that is pretty similar to the Section Eight housing will want to determine eligibility. So this will oftentimes reaching out to, you know, your local municipalities, uh, housing, uh, housing authority, uh, identifying the property, you know, making some of the quick, basic compliance requirements that it'll fit for that general area. Maybe looking into what the uh, medium income, median income for the area is just because, you know, you're going to, uh, be playing off of a percentage of that. So having that ready to roll uh, and then apply for the tax credit. So you'll actually apply with the, with the housing authority, uh, allocate your units. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the whole building that is subject to the, you know, the tax credit. Let's say you have a, for quick math, a, a apartment building with a hundred units, you might only want 50 of those units to be, um, you know, subject to that tax credit. So you won't get as big of a tax credit for you know the income, but you also will have 50 units that you can rent at whatever rate you want that is the you know, open market without any of these additional hurdles and compliance, uh, re, you know, reporting standards standards that you'll have with the uh, with the unit subject to the tax credit. Let me let me, jump in there. Let, me, let me jump in there because I want to mention this, this happened in a project I worked on in Kansas City. They, sometimes there are restrictions, the you know, number of units or percentage of units. Sometimes it'll be studio. Sometimes people get away with it. They'll be like, look, I got 20% of the units below a thousand a month and they make them all studio apartments. They're just smaller. So they're not, they're not actually even um, quote low income. They're just somebody paid for the studio. But then sometimes what the government will get smart on, and this is often at a local level, they will restrict that you can't have lower quality finishes and you can't put them all together. So it can't be like, okay, the second floor, those are all the poor people. That's the, that's the subsidized floor. Oh, by the way, on the second floor, the, the, the appliances are white. On the third floor, the appliances are stainless steel and we have granite countertops. And you need special key access to get to the third floor. Oh, and the pool on the 10th floor, it's only available for people on floors three, two, three through 10. So th there will be, the allocation is important, but generally... The paperwork, and you'll find this paperwork in your, you know, in your contract, your agreement, often your finance documents, often your title policy. Um, we had a client, I know you worked on it as well, that didn't even know the property was subject to some form of tax tax credit. This was a Kansas state tax credit, I think. But you're like, whoa, you have to comply with this, like big deal. Then all of a sudden, like, oh, well, the restrictions are you can't rent it for less than you know eighty percent of median income. Like, well, based on this location, like. That was a non-issue. Like those those rents are the equivalent of a dollar fifty a foot was the max. Well, the market's a dollar ten, so no big deal, right? But sometimes it is a big deal. So I think yeah. you know the devil's in details, and so yeah, really, as you're allocating your units, you got to just see what's in the agreement. And that's that's an excellent point. I mean, that would be the next 
next step is, uh, you know, part of that the allocation would be uh, reflected in and you'll sign the compliance agreement, which will outline all those restrictions that you just you know, outlined uh, and maintaining that compliance uh, can't can't breach that obviously just like any other agreement and then uh, as long as you do that and you jump through all the hoops and all the re, you know reporting has been done and at the end of the year you're compliant you'll be able to claim the tax credit which as you pointed out in the beginning um, is not just a you know deduction but an actual dollar for dollar tax credit off of your reportable taxable income so yeah i used to work at a larger kansas city law firm and one of the named partners there he no longer practiced law but he did he built one or two projects a year that were um, low-income housing tax credit projects and he may get on a 10 million dollar project three million dollars credit but he's like i don't have three million dollars a year taxable income so he sold the tax credits to his law partners typically to discount maybe 95 98 cents on the dollar some of the Credits like new markets tax credits, which are in certain census tracts and lots of requirements, those will sell at a lower dollar. Oftentimes, banks or kind of quasi-government utilities, um, they'll need income or ultra-high net worth people. Um, so the, that's the main pro is you get access to credits, which can then be a replacement for your own equity and or your own debt. Some people do it where they can do it where they don't have, they'll just raise enough money on credits and they'll do a, the whole capital stack. Normal capital stack is debt plus equity. Well, in these type of deals, you may have federal LIHTC money, federal historic tax credit, state historic tax credit, city grants, et cetera. Um, and sometimes you can monetize other tax incentives like property tax incentives, sales tax incentives, things that uh, I'll cover in another uh, another episode. But uh, other pros, you know, basically you get stable rental income and kind of like Section 8, there's generally increased demand in it for lower income housing or affordable housing pretty much everywhere in the country. You need more affordable housing. Um, there's there's still a good access to financing on these type of projects. And like um, Section 8, you kind of have a positive impact on the community. And there there is going to be compliance support. Um, that's a pro. I mean, you need it more because there's generally a lot of regular compliance with some of these projects. So, you you know, sometimes they'll even require, I guess this would be a con. I'm uh, stealing your thunder maybe. But sometimes the, the project will require a property manager or asset manager that has specific expertise with the program. I know we saw that on a deal we worked yeah. on end of the end of the year. It became a big last minute issue that the property management company was required to have somebody that was good at compliance. And that meant hire the last guy as quote staff post-closing for at least a period of one or two years. Well, that adds expense, right? So that's one of the cons. So the pro and con there, what are some other cons that I missed on that? Yeah, um, you'll have kind of like the Section Eight uh, fixed fixed house like rate rental rates that you can charge. So there's going to be a limit. Now sometimes it's not that bad because it's you know the area it's it, it works still. It's not that much of a hit. Uh, other times it, it can it can kill the deal. Um, you'll have the regulation and compliance that you know we've talked about maintaining it. Those it, it can often be more scrutinant than the Section Eight housing regulations and, and compliance requirements. Um, definitely more reporting. As you said, I mean, you can sometimes we have to have a property manager that has select experience for a you know, select amount of time. Uh, it can, can throw wrenches in uh, the, a plan that wasn't expected. Uh, you'll have limits on selling the property. Uh, so you'll have to you know gain the consent and 
from the from the housing authority, and depending on what's remaining on the tax credit, you know, it can uh, throw in additional hurdles in there for you know a simple sell. So it's not quite the the same as other other properties. Not as not as easy. The eviction that we've outlined, and then uh, noting that it, it can be more difficult to or not more difficult per se, but just as difficult handling the evictions and oftentimes have you know, repercussions for that. So uh, if someone is evicted, then how do you handle that occupancy rate? Because you're going to have to have a minimum amount of the units that are rented being for the, you know, the rent rent. And so this will have to be at all times, you know, it'll, you may have 40 of the units or 50 of the units in our, our previous example, subject to the tax credit and they'll say okay out of these 50 at, at any given time 15 of these units must be occupied and you know with, with a qualified uh, low low income tenant and so because again it's that way of promoting that they want to have affordable housing so it, it you know if you were at 15 and now someone's gone you're at 14 you you need to get someone in there and then just uncertainty regarding the program and the program's funding, it is, uh, you know, part of the politics game. So it, it can kind of shift and change based on the administrations that are in. So it, it's, it's not as stable as some of the other um, more fixed structures for acquiring property or deducing taxes, you know, via credits or what have you. Yeah, on that last one, I mean, it's been probably, man, I guess it's been six or seven years here in Missouri, I think it was 20, yeah, it was 2016, 17, 18, um, Democrat um, senator from Missouri, her husband was receiving a lot of low-income housing tax credit, other tax credit subsidy, I mean, to the tune of millions, and I think, I think actually tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, and the Republicans took over the Missouri, or had controlled the Missouri legislature, and they basically gutted the program. And like no more because they saw it as a way for her to like use influence to get money to her husband because it was hard to get approved for the section 42 program or these other programs because you did like you know you probably not your first real estate investment is becoming a developer of a section 42 apartment complex so it was it was a limited number of people that had the actual wherewithal and skills to get it done well it became very political so they just cut it out well then this was when I was in the mobile home park business. And I remember I bought a park here in Kansas City in December of 18. And it worked out really well for me because there was a massive need for affordable housing and hundreds of millions of dollars of state grants just disappeared overnight. So that that product thing was $150 million per year for two years was not built. So and that was just the subsidized part. So like total construction costs would have been, you know, maybe as much as a billion dollars of property that was not constructed because the program has disappeared. So you don't want to make your career, you know, bank on just one strategy. So section 42 can come and go. Um, and then when you sell the properties, there is a, you know, there are those restrictions that will deter some buyers. So the, you know, in general, the benefit of subsidized housing here is there's more demand from the residents, but if your property has uh, constraints on it, that is going to perhaps limit your alienability or your ability to sell the property on the back end. So pros and cons. I know we're going to cover a lot more of these topics in other episodes, but that's just your, your high level uh, overview of both section eight and section 42. Uh, so really appreciate you guys listening. Hunter, thanks for coming on for our audience.
Till next time, thanks, God bless, invest wisely. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Diversification Podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Visit www.rediversification.com to tune in to more exciting episodes and free information and tools that will help you succeed. Leave us a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and our other social media channels at the RED Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Missouri Bar Advertising Disclosure. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.